This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, the Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast. Here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, we're brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live. I'm joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. We are coming to you Monday morning after the Celtics lost 125 to 113 to the Miami Heat in game six of the Eastern Conference Finals. You can't spot a good team, a two nothing and then a three to one lead. The Celtics were scoring fine, I thought, for much of the game. Obviously they went cold in the fourth quarter, which kind of doomed them, but they actually, and they actually took a six point lead. In the end, Miami stormed back, bam out of bio. Uh, the Celtics, you specifically actually called this a bunch of times early in the series, Celtics had absolutely no answer for Bam Adebayo. When he just decided to put his head down, go directly at Daniel Tice, it changed the entire game. Nicole, you want to take a Bam Adebayo victory lap, or uh, what are your initial thoughts here? They literally gave this one away. Like, the whole series, they gave this game away, and it's indicative of what happened in the entire series. You couldn't have asked for a better path to the finals with Giannis out, with no home court advantage. And I was kind of surprised at how quickly they were like, on to the next in their post-game press conferences. Like, nobody really said anything. I don't know. I think, I guess I'm surprised that they just weren't more upset at themselves and that could have been attributed to the funky circumstance of the bubble. Maybe they're just happy to get the fuck out of there and, like, are just ready to be done and they can offer some more thoughts the next time we hear from them. But I was just... I don't know. I feel like their bubble experience came to like a crashing end. and It's literally their own fault. I, I agree with all of that. I think that one thing that may have happened is that they kind of got it out of their system. Not that they got it out of their system when Marcus Smart exploded and everybody fought, but that was sort of the moment when they accepted the position that they were in, that they had blown it. At that point, okay, like you're down 2-0 after two games that you legitimately could have won. You have blown two games. You have blown the chances of you realistically winning the series. Even though you were the favored team, at that point, you made yourself the underdog. And so that almost feels like the moment. And and so everything since then has sort of been like, you know, when things go wrong, it's sort of this grim acceptance of like, okay, you know, we put ourselves in this position. We've already had this fight. They fought after the one where they blew it. And then after that, they just sort of like, yeah, it's really hard to beat a team four times in five attempts. It's just, it's just really hard to do that. And they didn't. Tonight, Jalen, you know, Tatum, they all kind of talked about how raw the emotions were. I think that's kind of where they were was like, <laughs> it's like that one tweet that's like, ah, well, if it isn't the uh, consequences of my own actions, um, <laughs> like these were the consequences of losing games one and two. 
multiple people were firing off tweets. Jason Tatum is only, I don't even know how old he is because everyone says he's 19. Only 22, I think. He's 22, yeah. Okay. Jalen Brown is only 23. Like, the Celtics were in the conference finals. And it's like, Bam Adebayo is, I think, 22 as well. Tyler Hero is a rookie. Duncan Robinson is essentially a rookie. Other teams are contending with young talent. Yes, the Celtics made it to the conference finals, but they've made it before. I mean, everyone talks about how this is Brad's third conference final in the past four years. Like, I just think the expectations need to be higher. Like, there was no urgency. And I think that's, like, my point with the on to the next. Like, okay, why not this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't get how they couldn't create that sense of urgency after blowing the 14-point lead in game one. Like, game two, they did the exact same thing. And then we thought, like... And I get the bubble probably wore on them, but I just, I don't understand why there was just this lack of urgency. This was the first year that the Celtics could reasonably say they should have made the finals. Like this year they could have won. And I actually kind of wonder if having those experiences, obviously like that helps you in the playoffs. It helps you to like win playoff series. It helps you to lose ones and kind of get that little like bad taste in your mouth and like learn what it like the kind of urgency, the kind of desperation you need to play with to win. But also the Celtics learned that if they lost a playoff series, there would be more playoff series. And I wonder if that's one of the things that, you know, it sounds like Danny Ainge actually like really said to this team, like, like, no, this is an opportunity that you can't blow. I wonder if that's one of the things he's thinking about is like, okay, like, yes, it's great. Like you guys have all this bright future, but like at some point you won't. Exactly. Everyone talks about how, oh, Jalen Brown is so young and he's been to this many conference finals. Jason Tatum, same thing. And it's like, that's also an accomplishment in itself. But at some point you have to realize like, okay, you have to do something with those chances. Because next year, I mean, Bam Adebayo literally looks like he's going to be better than Giannis. Um, (laughs) That probably is prisoner of the moment, but like he looks. (laughs) That's a little prisoner of the moment. He looks great though. And he looked more like Giannis during this series than Giannis looked like um, Giannis in the bubble. Kyrie and Katie are going to be back. The Warriors presumably are going to be retooled. I mean, Giannis himself is going to be back and probably very hungry. And, like, who knows what the situation is going to be with the virus, but you would think that there are going to be fans and home court advantage and all this stuff. Like, you just couldn't have drawn up a better situation, I think, for the Celtics to really just take advantage of. But they just completely folded. I guess looking at this game specifically, typically after series we do winners and losers, but that doesn't really fit, I think, with what we're trying to do. Like, nobody was a real, like, loser per se, except for maybe Gordon Hayward. Okay. Can we can we do a can I do a quick thing on Hayward? Let's go. I was going to suggest we go like player by player. So like, uh, let's start with Gordon. So uh, the thing about Gordon is that like he was he was really bad, but like the man is playing on like a sprained ankle that is clearly hobbling him. He stayed in the bubble, missed the birth of his son. I think people are going to have to just give him like the credit for the season that he had because he was good most of the year when he wasn't injured. He was bad in the bubble. Like he was bad when he came back. He was hobbled. You could tell he was moving poorly. Like I don't know what you can analyze, what you can say about Hayward. Like, oh, this guy, like he just doesn't have it anymore. It's like, oh, like he came back too early because everybody yelled at him that they needed a zone breaker. So he came back and tried to be the zone breaker and it like didn't work because his ankle was broken. Well, strange, but you know what I mean. Okay. So Gary Washburn reported in his story last night that This is quote from Gary Washburn's story on the Boston Globe. Hayward sustained nerve and retina damage in that sprained ankle, and he could barely jump. 
he needed about two plus more weeks of rehab that the Celtics just didn't have. So he played on one leg. And that's according to an NBA source. Clearly, he was not 100%. I mean, do you think he should have played? Like, what was the point in rushing him back? Like, I don't blame Hayward, obviously, because clearly he wasn't healthy. I mean, it showed both in his, like, comfort level, I think, like the eye test, and then also in his stats. Both ways, it was not good. Like, it wasn't like he was passing the eye test and he just couldn't get shots to fall. Like, no, like, just overall, uh, a net loss. What are your thoughts on the decision to push him to play? The thing is that it feels like it was something that was kind of pushed along by everyone involved. Hayward, too. If he was two weeks away from being able to potentially, like, safely return, that makes sense. Like, he looked like it. If he's two weeks away, he shouldn't have played. Like, I'm sorry. Like, it, it does make me wonder if, you know, oh, he's reacted well. I wonder if how true that was. Every time we asked that and they said that he was reacting well, I wonder if he was. Like, just from a game plan standpoint. It yeah, for sure. Yeah, like... It didn't help. I just don't get... Yeah. When they started beating the zone, it was just by running the simple crap they could have been running the whole time. It wasn't because Gordon Hayward was out there. It was because they were running high screen and rolls, which were getting Kemba easy looks. It was because they were getting the ball into the paint and spraying it out. Like, that was what beat the zone. It wasn't Gordon Hayward. It's not a knock against Gordon Hayward. The band was two weeks away from being ready to play on a grade three sprained ankle. I don't know. I just don't think this was a good idea on anybody's part. (laughs) Gordon truly was 100%. Like, if he was able to get all the rehab he needed, he would have been a much-needed boot. Probably would have been everything that we said he would, but... It's just, like, you can't expect to rush a guy back during the conference finals and be like, you're good, right? Like, you can you can contribute. Like Let's do some of the other guys uh, quickly here. Jason Tatum, he was fine. You know, he did not have any moment where I felt like he really imprinted himself upon the game the way that Adebayo did. I think that was a big part of the difference, was that there was a stretch where you were like, oh, man, Bam Adebayo is just, like, undeniable. And, like, there wasn't really that stretch for Tatum in Game 6. There were, you know... Some nice plays. You know, he did not make himself felt the way that that Bam did. 24 points on 26 shots. Not going to win. Not efficient. Yeah. Yeah. I I forget his final box score. Did he end up with 10 assists? He did end up with 11 assists. So a new career high. He never got the triple-double, though. (laughs) Seven rebounds. With Tatum, I think, at least for myself, I forgot how much of a leap he's made. One, because the season has been a year And two, because he's been at this level for so long. I mean, it basically was since the all-star break. If you think about the way he was playing last season and at the beginning of this season and to what we expect of him now, like it's two different players. And I think coming into this season, he wasn't the number one guy yet. He sort of took on that role with his development. And next season, though, he will be going into the offseason as the number one guy. He will be going into the season openers as the number one option. In these playoff games, with his skill set and the type of player he is as a volume shooter and with that setback three, he should be scoring over 30 points. You're right. He's too good, you know, to be putting up, like, 24 points. I know they're not, like, super comparable, but I just think about, like, Jamal Murray scoring, like, 50-plus points multiple times and just putting his team, like, literally on his back. Donovan Mitchell, I mean, that guy on the Celtics is Jason Tatum. That's the one issue with Tatum is that, like, he is a shooter at his heart. And sometimes shooters are, like, shooters are not going to, like, spend the entire game making all of their shots. So when they are cold, it's going to be very noticeable if they are your primary high-volume guy. Jamal Murray doesn't just, like, when he goes off, he's not just hitting threes. He's getting in the pick and roll and getting to the rim and finishing with acrobatic finishes. Like, Donovan Mitchell, like, the same thing. Like, like for Tatum, it's got to be a thing where he's not just getting all of his offense from shooting. 
I, I, I tweeted this the other day. I hate turning into like the, they just need to take it to the rat guy because like, I'm a shooter. I love shooters. I love shooting. I think it's great. If Tatum, if that's what Tatum is, like there's going to be cold stretches. That's one of the reasons why there were so many moments where it was like, wait a minute. Why are they not getting Jalen Brown the ball a little bit more? Because when Jalen got the ball, I mean, he took some threes, especially toward the end when they were trying to shoot themselves back into the game. But like for the most part, when he got the ball, he was putting his head down and trying to get to the rim when nothing is falling or when the defense is really tough or when it's a huge playoff moment and you're trying to come up with some offense to keep propelling yourself forward, you need that guy who's going to put his head down and get to the rim. So I don't know what the answer is there for Tatum. I mean, maybe it's just more development in the pick and roll. Maybe it's, I mean, I, I think that's it. His stardom so far starts with his three-point shooting. And I, and I think that that can be problematic if his three-point shooting isn't falling. And I guess, like, if that's going to be what he's going to rely on, then he needs to increase his range. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I tweeted that uh, a couple of days ago, and Drew Hamlin responded. He was like, this offseason. And I was like, yeah, yeah, so that's kind of what I figured. If your range expands, the lane opens up, you warp defenses. It, not not that Tatum is Steph Curry, but it's the Steph Curry effect, where it's much easier for Steph to score around the basket because teams are already panicking when he's 35 feet from the hoop. So I'm not saying Tatum needs to get to the point where 35 feet from the hoop, but like 28, 29 would be good. That would really help. I thought, once again, I, I, I think that people don't always talk about Jalen Brown in, like, big games as much as they should. Like, I feel like the, the guy is just not scared of big games. Like, he just does not look shook. I thought he got caught up toward the end in the three-point shooting, but everybody did because everybody was trying to get them back into it. For the most part, like, I always just feel like he's, he's a very steady player, which makes sense with his mentality. Like, he's, he's a, you know, a fairly steady human. No, I mean, Jalen was great throughout the entire bubble, and he often gets overshadowed, I think, by Tatum and Kemba Walker and Marcus even, and just rarely unless he goes off for like 35 or has like a game winner or something, like has like a key bucket, rarely does he get the spotlight. But no, I feel like he was also the one that for the longest time was able to like stick to good basketball. And like you said, like be aggressive and just like stay poised. And I mean, he made a number of timely threes throughout the series that really gave him a fighting chance. And like even just his development as a shooter and like his hand, like he's just shown so much growth as he likes to say, like every day is a good day for growth. But it's just, it's really exciting for the Celtics, obviously, because with both Jalen and Jason, you know, they're going to get better. That's the argument for not, you know, overreacting to like a loss in the Eastern Conference Finals, right? Is that like the team should be really disappointed based on everything like that we mentioned before. But yeah, like the people who are, who are yelling about how great the young core is are a hundred percent right. Like these two are really good basketball players. Like Jalen Brown is really promising and he's the second best prospect on his team. Brown definitely deserves his roses for how he played in the, in the bubble. He was excellent. We can get into the other guys too. Like smart. He's always going to kind of be who he is. I think Marcus had a really bad series. I'm trying to, I mean, at some point we're talking about semantics. I'm trying to decide how like really bad is fair or not. I think he had a tough series. He had some incredibly bad shooting performances and like that were pretty costly. Tyler Hero, not scared of Marcus Smart at all. No, and I think Marcus Smart realized that. Like when Marcus got that breakaway dunk and sort of like hung on the rim a little bit, I feel like he was trying to, I don't know, like showboat and Tyler Hero literally didn't care. (laughs) Went on to hit like multiple important shots. Like, imagine just being, like, a 20-year-old rookie and seeing Marcus Smart in front of you and I was like, hey, I got this. <laughs> like, what? Like, it is something. 
I, I think Marcus, my, I guess my, my larger point is that I think Marcus had a tough series. I, I guess the reason I'm not like, I, just like, what are you going to say about it? Like, he's going to be Marcus Smart. He's not going to add something in the offseason that's going to make him a drastically different player. He's going to come back next year and be like a great defender who, you know, has a lot of irrational confidence on the offensive end. Like, I just, I, I don't know what changes and that's okay. Like, he's, he's a good player and the Celtics love him. Like, that's, I, I just think that's kind of who he is and that's a, that's an okay thing. I mean, his shooting has gotten so much better over For his sure. Celtics tenure. I wonder, I mean, I would assume that he's going to keep working on that and then maybe that will make sort of the number of misses go down because I think that's the biggest thing with him in this series was just like the shot selection and then he would just miss. I think he just made a couple of decisions where he didn't really defer to, I mean, we've, we went over the ones with Jalen in transition. Like, I just think like, okay, in game six, he took 13 threes, made four of them. 13 threes is probably too many for Marcus Smart. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I just, I think with him, I think too, just the role of being in the starting lineup was a transition of some sort. It's very seamless because, I mean, he's one of their best five players, but I think different things are asked of him when he's in the starting lineup versus when he's off the bench. I mean, that's why he's so valuable is because he can come off the bench and basically be a starter. But I don't know. I just think that like, he, I guess if we don't want to say he had a bad series, he didn't have a good series. No, he certainly did. I'm not saying that we shouldn't say he had a bad series. I'm just, again, it's more just like the duality of smart it was just kind of yeah he is who he is the celtics rightfully love him but sometimes he's, he's gonna shoot a lot um, i guess i wrote this in my column for today but the only thing i will say about kemba is that he turns 31 in may i am 31 i can tell you with some certainty that you are not washed at 31 you're, you're looking down a little bit, you know, like, whereas at like 28, 27, 28, you're kind of like, you know, you're like on like a plateau or like you're kind of looking up a little bit, like your peak is still a little bit ahead of you. Whereas when you turn 31, it's like, all right, like I probably won't be like as healthy as I've been, you know, like the last 10 years of my life. It's funny that you say that because there's this guy who was trying to tell me that like once you turn 32, it's like all downhill from there. Like 32 (laughs) is like the age where you like sort of stop like peaking if you're like an average person. Yeah. And like, look, like there's a million things you can do to like make sure that it's not a precipitous fall off or that, or that even like if you haven't been taking taking care of yourself up until 31 that you can get better after that. Kemba Walker has been taking care of himself. I'm not saying that Kemba Walker is going to be bad going forward or that his that his contract is going to be like a bad one for the Celtics or anything like that. I'm not saying anything. I'm not making any judgments on those scores, but I do think that 31 is 31. So this is what I have to say about that. The other thing too is that we haven't even tested Kemba's durability because that was, I think, one of my big questions is, as a player who hasn't made a deep playoff run, can Kemba stay healthy enough? And like, can his knee, especially this season, sort of hold up? They got bailed out this year because there was that four-month break and he was able to load manage into the playoffs. But if you think about where Kemba was in March, still missing games, still all this mysterious conversation about the status of his knee, like he would not have been anything close to what he was in the playoffs in the bubble if you sort of go back to the, I guess, the original right. timeline. Right. So I, I just think that's my biggest question for him moving forward is like, how healthy is he? What is up with this knee? Like, will he need to get a pre- some sort of procedure this offseason? Yep. 
after this season, if nothing changes, I have a hard time seeing him play 82 regular season games and then a full playoff run, completely healthy. Like, I bet he will be load-managed next season and go from there. I personally am not super comfortable talking about his health, which is why I, like, immediately deflect to the fact that I'm 31 because, like, I don't know what's going on with, like, somebody else's body. I don't know what their training is. You know, like, I don't – I'm not a doctor. Like, it's possible that he comes back next season and is just, like, the same Kemba Walker that we saw in Charlotte. I don't know that that's likely. The point is, I think that it's got – it's something that has to be considered. Like, you have to think about the fact that he's going to be 31 and that things happen when you're in your 30s. I'm not a doctor either, but the simple fact that he had all this knee soreness in March, they never really gave us the straight answer other than there's no long-term damage. But okay, if there's no long-term damage or there's no long-term concern, then how come after a four-month hiatus, he needs to be like load-managed to the point that he was load-managed and like he wasn't practicing? Like, and I you get can talk he... about his character all you want. We, we believe you. Like his character, like we believe that he's working hard. We believe that he wants to be out there. Like I'm not worried about, you know, one thing I'm not worried about is Kemba's character. Like, okay, okay, that's great. But like, neither are we. We're just wondering about his knee. And like, I get that you need to sort of ramp him up. I totally understand that. But it was just like, it seemed a little bit much for something that they're trying to say is not a concern. Like right. that's, if you want to handle it that way, that's fine. But like, that means that his knee is a concern. Correct. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so last thing we'll touch on is the, the big man situation. I, I don't think much is going to change. I know a lot of people were calling for, you know, like the Celtics have to go improve their big core. Like, yeah, but I think that those improvements can come internally. I personally would want to see what, you know, Robert Williams, what Grant Williams look like next year. When Grant was in the game, uh, in game six, he was excellent for a long stretch, defensively, obviously. But that's what they need. They don't need a big man who's gonna, like, it helps when Rob Williams is scaring people by rolling down the, by rolling down the lane, but it's not a, it's not really that crucial. If I'm the Celtics, I would want to see what I have in those two before I start making moves for the big rotation. I think there's other needs. The one counter to that is, Okay, like, yeah, the Sixers weren't very good this year, but presumably they will still have Embiid next year. The Heat now have Bam. That's two bigs. I mean, Giannis sometimes plays the five in Milwaukee. Well, I won't really count him. Even if he doesn't play the five, he presents, I think, a similar challenge in size and, like, force. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You would have to, yeah. So the guy, if the guys are on your roster are the, are the guys that you think can do it, then fine. Like, you know, then they, they maybe they can do it. But, like, you need some answers because it, it, it can't just be a thing where – like the Celtics aren't going to be able to be the Rockets and they're not going to be able to just go completely small because the East has really good bigs now. The players on the roster might be able to fill that gap, but like the gap is going to need to be filled somehow now. The telling moment for me was when Tice picked up his fourth foul and his fifth foul is relatively early. And his sixth foul. They were all right away in a row. <laughs> When when he picked up his fourth, there was some time between the fifth. The fifth and the sixth came, like, very right. soon. But even after picking up his fourth, it was, I don't know, early in the fourth or, like, late in the third, and Brad was just like, nope, you're staying in the game. Like, I think that was indicative of, like, if we're going down, like, Tice is the guy type yeah. thing. And even when he picked up his fifth, stayed in the game, and he picked up his sixth, like, very early. It was, like, with six minutes left in the quarter. He had nothing for Bam. So just whenever Bam rolled down the rim, Tice had to slap at him, and it was that was it. Clearly, Tice is the only big that Brad really trusts. Yes. The problem with each of the other Celtics bigs is that they all just have like a major flaw. 
Ennis Cantor, I don't think, is going to be on this team next year. So I also think his flaw is the one that's going to stick with him for the rest of his, however long his career lasts. Both Rob and Grant are so young that I think, like, this offseason can be a time for them to really address the flaws in their game. And then hopefully, like you've mentioned, these changes can be internal. The best five lineup, I don't even know if we'll see that next year. I mean, I don't think it'll receive the same level of hype, certainly, because it, yeah. was, it was not very good, again. The fact that it wasn't very good also s- speaks to why the Celtics need to at least figure out some solution at the five. Agreed. All right, very last thing that we should talk about here. Um, we should touch on Brad. I wouldn't call myself, like, a, like an apologist over this series. I have certainly, like... I think that there is only so much that Brad can do, like when he is imploring players to like drive into the paint and they're continue to hoist threes or when he's uh like, he certainly didn't turn the ball over 19 times in, in game, game four, I think. Celtics fans like to call for coaches jobs. So I'm sure they will call for Brad's job. I, I don't think that Brad Stevens is going anywhere. Like, I don't know who, like, how you would improve on, on Brad as your head coach. Players like him. They respect him. I don't think this was his best series. Like, I, I don't I don't know what else to say about him other than that. Like, I think Brad is a very good coach who got outcoached by probably a better coach in, uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals. It's funny because listening to him talk after this loss versus listening to him talk after the Milwaukee loss – was just like night and day. The Milwaukee loss last season. That yeah, ended. yeah, yeah. After that loss, he was like, "Credit to those guys. Those guys have built championship habits from day one. Those guys are. <laughs> those guys know what they're doing, you know." And then about himself, he was like, "This is the most trying year. I blame myself. I didn't do a good enough job." And then after this game, he was like. I'm so appreciative of, and then listed like a million things about the team that he was appreciative of. I feel like for him, it was just almost, and I mean, you can't really, if we're going to hold the players and say that they wasted an opportunity, Brad did too. But I think it almost was like a reset for him because I do think last year was like traumatic for Brad. Yeah. (laughs) A part of it too is you can only do so much with what you've been given. Like, yeah, Brad probably shouldn't put Ennis Cantor out for another stint or maybe put Ennis Cantor out at all. But, like, what else do you expect him to do? Rant? I guess that. Yeah. <laughs> like, there was an option there. Like, I don't disagree with any of your points except that, like, yeah, no, there probably was another option there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. You know, when I say that Eric Spolstra is clearly, like, the better coach than Brad, I think that's partly because Eric Spolstra has been through more than Brad has. Like, Spolstra's been in the league longer. Like, he coached LeBron James. Like, that is – he's not shook by anything. Eric Spolster has been through everything, and uh, Brad hasn't yet. There are things that I think Brad Stevens needs to learn, and I think the fact that he is a really good coach means that as he experiences those things, he will get better. So these are, the, and these are just things, again, Brad knows so much more about basketball than we do that it's, it's hard to criticize him on these things, but those are just like sort of NBA truths that like as you experience things, you get better at them, you you learn from mistakes if you're good, and I think that Brad is good, so I, I think he will continue to learn. I think he implemented some of those lessons this year. I assume there are lessons he will learn this year that he will implement next year, and uh, I assume that he will be implementing them with the Boston Celtics because they're not going to fire Brad Stevens. Calm down, everyone. Yeah, no. He just signed that extension. They just signed an extension. So, All right, guys. Well, Nicole and I will get into a lot more like off-season, like look-ahead stuff in the future. We really appreciate everyone who stuck with us. We started at a weird time at the start of a pandemic, and we appreciate everybody who's listened. As always, we appreciate a five-star review, a, a nice note. We will talk to you all soon.